Bobo Choa. Other than having my voice register back, I'm very excited to be able to 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 push my voice up to those that top register that I love so much. I do have a question for you. And this this was spawned by an earlier podcast I did for Teach Me Teacher. And I was like, oh, this is a great question for Miss Ochoa, which was, what is a positive writing experience that you remember having as a young person in school, like the earliest one, if you can think of it, or if not your earliest one, then the most powerful one, whichever way you want to take it. But one of these, a powerful writing experience that has stayed with you, uh, and you can recall it. And then I just kind of want to, I just want to know what that is. Can you think of one? Are you kidding? They didn't have us right back then. (laughs) (laughs) You never wrote? all the questions. No. What? No, we wrote book reports. Do you have a you do have a positive book report? Have a negative writing. That's hang on you. Y'all never wrote. Well, we wrote junior themes, and I didn't know how to type very well. Y'all didn't write like in elementary school. Maybe. We 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 did our letters. Are you to tell me you have no positive writing experiences in school? Well, uh, we, we, well, we, <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> I thought this was a surefire question. <laughs> we wrote, uh, I, I remember my eights were really good and she like got up there and said, your eights are really good. And I got to do that. That was great. We did a lot of reading. What did we write? Maybe we wrote stories. I'm not remembering any, Jacob. Wow. This is except, this is the most mind-blowing <laughs> answer. Except when we got, I mean, you know, you did book reports. You know, I remember writing, and, and we did projects where you had like a poster. I remember having to give a speech. I was really good at impromptu speeches. Did you have to that write was the speech? Cool. <laughs> I don't, no, it was an impromptu. Uh, I think we did write a speech once. Honestly, uh, Jacob, I know you're surprised, but I didn't start writing successfully until I got to college. So you had no real writing before Not like what you and I talked about, no. Well, even then, I mean, I think this is wild to me. I'm like I know I know you didn't expect that, did you? No, I was I mean, like, out of all the questions, don't ask that one. Don't ask that. There he goes. He asked it, everybody, and I have to tell him my teachers. I don't remember anything that was special. Well, I, I remember great teachers. So, I remember word crosses, <laughs> crossword puzzles. I was good at word find. I can. You saw me the other day. We had a little word find that popped up. Oh, I was yeah. good at that. I can word find anything. I, I'm good at I'm good at answering worksheet questions. I just don't understand. Because here's the thing. Here's what everyone talks about. Okay, everyone talks about, and by everyone, I just mean like a loud group of people that we come across. But everyone talks about how right. education is watered down these days, or you know, we've gone too far into quote unquote like loose education or what people on the political spectrum might call liberal education or you know where we think more about kids' feelings versus academics or whatever. And here you're telling me 
in the good old days of education, you didn't write. Now, I remember, like, in high school, there was a creative writing course, but I was not on that path. I don't know why I was on that path, but I wasn't on that path. And I remember, I remember sitting in that room, probably, I don't know why we were in that room. It was not my regular room. Maybe, maybe there was a substitute. You know how sometimes you have to cover a class? So we were sent to that room. But they had how to write on the board. Like they had, you know, the general to specific uh, symbol, you know, where it's like, that carrot that's general to specific and then specific to broad. And I remember looking at that, wishing I could be in that class because I, because I didn't know what that was and it really bothered me. I know you're surprised. I'm flabbergasted. My, my theme, I got to write, I wanted to write on my junior theme and it was, uh, I chose to write because I like history. I chose to write about uh, the Japanese uh, war, you know, with World War II. I was kind of fascinated with that. And the like, like their side? Uh, no, just the, just, I don't even know just anymore. The I just know involving that the, more involving the, Japan. Ja- that, the Pacific mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. side mm-hmm. of it. And I wrote on that and I made, and he said I made an A on my ideas when we turned in our rough draft. But then we had to type it. And so when we typed it, it was like, well, I mean, I, I hadn't had my, all my typing class. I had a little bit of typing classes, but I didn't really, I mean, I didn't do real well with that. And so we had to do endnotes. No, we had to do footnotes. Footnotes. Now, I've never really typed before, and now I had to do footnotes on a typewriter, which meant that you had to measure it. So we had a ruler and all this stuff. I had to measure, and it had to be like one inch all the way around because we didn't have word processors that did it for us. And we had to tab and I had to figure out that my mother showed me how to tab and set a tab. Cause you had to set your own tabs and then you had to know exactly, you had to kind of judge, okay, I'm, I'm going to have three footnotes here. So if I have three footnotes here and I have to have this space in my foot in my footnote. So I had to like get out and figure out ahead of time where I was going to stop on the paper and then measure that. And then we had to do the footnotes. I don't even know what style it was. I know in college I did Travian style. Anyway, I didn't do that right, apparently. So I got a C on my typing. So I got a C on the paper. This is this is wild. So if... if okay, let's <laughs> I think ex- I wrote about... I, well, I think I re- I'm remembering Antigone. I think we wrote something about Antigone. And then I remember us writing something in senior level class. And it was just kind of for fun. It was like a story or something that we made up. I don't remember what mine was. But I do remember that one of my student, our students, one of my our friends, he wrote his about wishing he was fishing. And it was funny. But I don't remember. I remember other people. I don't remember mine. I don't know what I wrote. And, and I do know that when I got to college and I had to write, I didn't know how. I didn't know what to do. I was mad at my teachers. And I didn't realize I wasn't getting it. I mean, it really, the school that we go to was a good school, but I wasn't in honors. I didn't even know they had honors or pre-AP or whatever you want to call it. I wasn't in that. I just was going to school. And so 
I made good grades. I don't remember writing. I don't remember writing poetry. I remember learning about poetry. We did a lot of reading. And, and, and any kind of writing that we did was more of an analysis of the reading. No. This is wild. So how did you learn how to, you learned how to write in college? Sort of, yeah. I mean, you, you learned how to write enough to get by. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have graduated, I assume. But Yeah, I mean, my freshman, we had uh, Mr. Um, Dr. Dr. Schroeder, and and I don't think he's with us anymore because I'm now old, and he was old then, so I'm sure he's not with us anymore. But uh, Dr. Schroeder was a neat person, and what he would do is he had us, it was my first time to have a writing journal because I didn't journal when I was younger. So we had a writing journal and uh, we had to write every day and we had to write at least two pages every day. And that's where I learned how to write. Of course, when, when I turned mine in, it was a B. So, so I made a B every time because he was one of those, that he grades the first one and went, yeah, B student. But I did learn a lot. I just always made Bs. I never made anything higher than a B in his class until I took him for senior folklore. And we wrote, that was that was a neat class. Yeah, I don't have a good writing experience. I'm really good at grammar. Yeah, I know you did a lot you can, of grammar. Can, we did a lot diagram of diagram a sentence. I've I seen can it. diagram. We did a lot of diagramming. Mm-hmm. That's wild. I'm, yeah. My mind's blown. My mind is. Blown. I know. Where did I learn how to write? Avidos. Yeah, but I mean, how many years was that after? Uh, that was probably. Let's see. I graduated. I started teaching in '87, and so I took that in '92. So I taught my first five years. I apologize to everybody I ever meet that I taught in the first five years of my career because I taught them the way I did. I had worksheets and I wasn't I very good. I think that's just how everyone starts. Oh no, but that's how it started because that's all I knew. Yeah. I answered all the questions. I was really good at answering questions. I can answer a question. Anyway, there you go. Except for this one. <laughs> I answered this one. I don't really remember Jacob. I know that's terrible. But my writing, my true writing time started uh, probably with Dr. Schroeder's class. And uh, when I got to Abydos that first, I think it was after the first, it's a, it was a 15-day course back then. And uh, the, I had never written that much in my life. And all of a sudden, everywhere I looked, there was an idea. I never had ideas before on what to write. Never did. I thought writing books were for other people, not for me. So this is interesting because while you were talking, I was mm-hmm. like, so you, I mean, you started te- teaching late 80s. You did yeah. Abydos in early 90s. Right. And I was like, when the heck was like kind of the original workshop stuff going down? They were doing their research in 76. Well, that's when Donald Grace founded his, uh, yeah. the writing process laboratory at the University of New Hampshire. Yeah, um, up in the Northeastern. So, I mean, it took what, oh. nearly 20 years to make it to, I mean, I know Abydos isn't mm-hmm. fully based on that, but I mean, that's kind of the... That's one of the core oh, no, that, tenets. That's it. That if you if you look at the acts of teaching book yeah. itself, and you talk to Dr. Carroll, mm-hmm. Dr. Carroll, her she was a student of Janet Emig, Dr. Emig, and Dr. Emig was in that consortium with Donald Graves and all of them, with Peter Elbow and yeah, yeah, yeah. all of those people. Mm-hmm. Peter Elbow is awesome. That, we don't mention him enough, but Peter Elbow is awesome. great. 
Yes. And the thing is, is they were all in a consort. They knew each other. They talked and they analyzed and they studied their writing process. And that's when they came up with this idea that really these kids need to have time to write choice because we're taking the ability to write essays. I mean, I knew how to write a five paragraph essay. I I did learn that, but uh, I remember my first, um, paper that I wrote in college, the very first one, not Dr. Schroeder. So I might've had him my sophomore year, but in my freshman year, I struggled. And my first paper, I remember that the teacher, uh, the professor wrote on there, um, redundant, 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 all the way across the page in red. That was my writing experience in my first year, my first paper. But Donald Graves and them going back to that, they decided that's not how you should teach, but that's how they were teaching. So I'm, you know, but I don't think it was everybody. I think if people had that research or they had, they were already writers like you are, then it was kind of innate. But I I don't think I had reading teachers. I had literature teachers. I didn't have writing teachers. And when I started training teachers, Most of them felt like me, especially at the beginning, where they never had. I mean, we would do this exercise where we asked them about their experience like you did me. And it was very negative. Almost everybody was negative in the early 90s. That is wild. I mean, I guess it makes sense. I mean, it's just, it's interesting to, I think that's the most fun thing about talking to you is because you have such a good memory about certain things (laughs) is you can kind of detail some of this stuff because, you know, I'm, everyone knows I'm, you know, I'm fairly young still and, uh, and I know my research, but I don't know it nearly as well as you do. And the, the timetables, I feel like time is always the, the hard thing for, for at least for me, I don't know if anyone else struggles with that, but I definitely struggle with like, just like the passage of time and understanding, you know, how long ago it really was. Right. I mean, you think about it, like, I mean, I hear it. It's going to be a really, I guess, wide reference, but like human beings have been writing for, I mean, just about like 50 to a hundred thousand years, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly recent, at least from what we can document, right? I mean, if you talk cave paintings and stuff like that, um, you can talk about, uh, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about that. Right. And, um, and to education wise, I mean, what we're talking about here, you know, it feels like it's, it's something that has been around for a long time, but it really hasn't. I mean, in retrospect of just looking at, workshop, you know, talking about, you know, kind of originated in, you know, the early, the late seventies into the eighties and nineties and stuff. But I, you know, there's, there might be something to the fact that why writing is always kind of the short, the, the short, uh, it, it gets the short staff, right? It gets the, the, it doesn't get the full attention of everything. It doesn't get the full attention of curriculum. It doesn't get the full attention of educators often. And it's kind of like the back seat to some things. It's the bridge to content rather than the content itself, right? It's the, right. I just keep beating that quote over and over again, because I just think it's, it's so true. And I think, uh, I, uh, you know, you least gave us some anecdotal evidence to that now. I want to tell everyone before we move on that this is the Crap the Draft podcast, 15 minutes in and doing the intro. That's Pam Ochoa. I'm Jacob Chastain. We are two English teachers down here in the state of Texas, loving workshop, teaching at the same school, doing all of that, planning together, talking together, and most importantly, talking with you all. Uh, 
about this, having this wonderful podcast where we join every single week to answer questions, to meander through topics, to talk about some of the bigger ideas, talk about our lessons, and pretty much everything in between. But I want you guys to know at the top of this episode that you should thank our Patreon supporters because they make sure that this podcast stays going and stays supported. They are Courtney, Rebecca, Sarah, Amy, Mark, Leah, Brandy, and Alicia. They support us over there on Patreon just like you can at two different levels. The Listener, Listener Plus level. Pam just informed me that we have merch going out for the first time. And now this is a big thing for me because anything I've ever done, Teach Me Teacher, Teach Me Teacher has no merch, never had any merch. I'm not... (laughs) I don't know why this has never happened. Craft and Drive is the first thing, and we don't even have it. This is going out to listeners first, and it's all because they support us over there on Patreon, which I think is super cool. So hopefully if they are listening, which I'm sure they are, uh, I want to see some pictures of this merch. What does it look like when you get it? Let's, let's you know, give us some feedback on it. Show us yeah. some excitement. You can DM it if you're not a social media person. But I just want to see it. I want to see the, the Craft and Draft merch out there in the wild. But if you want to be like them and get access to merch, early episodes, or not early episodes, bonus episodes and bonus content including video demos including a lesson and the craft and draft process go over there to patreon you can do that you also get first in line to questions it's a wonderful place to be come join us it'd be absolutely wonderful in any case miss ochoa i want to you mentioned antigone I, w- I want to talk about this for a hot second before we get to courtney's question because uh i remember reading antigone in high school um, and I remember a very specific moment, which was we were sitting there and we had just finished it. And I remember sitting back going, I don't get it. I don't understand what happened. And one of the, I don't remember what girl it was, but there was a girl in class. She just kind of explained it to me. She kind of walked me through the process, you know, why why the ending is the way it is. Spoilers, there's death if you haven't read Antigone. Um, <laughs> lots and lots of death. Uh, but uh, I remember sitting back going, huh, oh, that's pretty cool. And, like, I, I, it was just one of those moments where I, I it just didn't really click. I guess, because, I mean, it is older language. It's kind of strange, and I wasn't the best uh, comprehender of things in in high school, but it's such an interesting story. I I love that that whole, like, collection of just kind of ancient uh, stories. One of my favorite quotes ever is from... uh, from Antigone where they say, then do not pray anymore. The sky is deaf. I always thought that was such an epic line of <laughs> basically saying I, that the heavens are no longer listening to you. You have, you have sinned to such a massive degree. You are so lost that the heavens themselves are deaf. And I was just like, holy crap. Like that has stuck with me ever since then. Um, but you know, my, the reason I brought that back up other than to tell that story was, you know, you talked about how you didn't write, in your in your schooling, um, was your reading more difficult then? Was there like a more focus on, like I guess what we would consider literature or whatever? You know, we I know the canon yeah. and stuff, but was it because we even today, like in high schools, like pretty much everywhere, like the canon is there. You can pretty much guarantee they're going to read Romeo and Juliet, the Odyssey, the yeah. Scarlet Letter, the Great Gatsby, yeah. all that stuff. I mean, was your did you have that list plus yep. more, or was it pretty much the same? 
No, I was on the same list. I mean, uh, we did, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I remember being excited because I got a part in Romeo and Juliet and I got to read it. So I liked reading out loud. I still do. So Me too. Uh, my teacher, who I've referenced a thousand times because she was my freshman teacher, senior teacher, uh-huh. current colleague, Miss Hammer. You know Hammer. She, yes, in do. my freshman year, we were doing Romeo mm-hmm. and Juliet and we did tryouts. And my friend, who I'm still friends with today, got Romeo and I did not. And I was extremely upset about it. And guess what? We did the same tryouts in my senior year for Hamlet. And guess who got Hamlet? I did he because did. I am the better reader. <laughs> yeah, I, had every, I don't know why. I feel. I guess I'm nostalgic today. I've had so many stories. Anyway, keep going. Keep going. I didn't mean to derail. Well, no. I mean, you know, we did uh, We did all the – we did Shakespeare, um, uh, Julius Caesar. I remember doing that. Uh, I remember we had to we had to memorize most of it, not most of it, but the soliloquy or whatever. And then uh, let's see, uh, did uh, Scarlet Letter? Uh, we did the Crucible, so we did both of them. There was no choice, I guess. Uh, let's see what else. Yeah, we did all of those. I remember reading. Um, Ichabod Crane, you know, uh, Washington Irving type stuff, you know, so, yep, we did the same stuff that they do today. It's interesting. It's interesting. We, yeah. One of, there's a guy I follow um, on Twitter who I don't always agree with. I've had him on Teacher Teachers named Matthew Ryan. He's a, I believe he teaches at a Catholic school, uh, but he's very in love with the canon uh, and whatnot. He has very... Uh, low opinions about young adult fiction. <laughs> he, he gets, you know, he's very passionate about them. I find him interesting because I, I disagree with him on quite a bit when it comes to that, but um, I like his arguments. I think he's very respectful. He's not, he's not, uh, he's not being a shock jock. He's just kind of pushing what he thinks. And whatnot. It's very interesting. But one of the things that he posted the other day um, was he goes, imagine reading books that won't matter in a few years. And like, and I was like, oh, "Wow!" I was like, "Wow, that's a that's a shots fired." First of all, but it's also it's a, it's an interesting stance for because I know we've done our fair share of wandering through you know the validity of just teaching the canon versus other books and whatnot, and you know the the only counter to something like that is I, a lot of the books that we call canon, you know, weren't they weren't received in their time, right? They right they were kind of looked down upon. Like, you know, like a lot of like, I guess, snobby literature people, so to speak. And I say that with endearment because I consider myself at least somewhat in that camp. I don't mean snobby as an insult. It's more of like just people who understand and who have read tons of the great literature of the world, I guess, is, uh, you know, a lot of them like look down on like fantasy and stuff like that. But Han- oh, not Hamlet, Shakespeare wrote fantasy, right? I mean, he had fantasy elements. Yeah. He had supernatural elements in his yeah. fiction. And so... Time is weird, you know, just to kind of go back to that is we don't know what's going to be, what's going to stand the test of time. You know, there's probably undiscovered geniuses right now who we won't really understand the the brilliance of the work until it's out. One of my favorite books of all time is Every Man Dies Alone. The author died. It was the only book he wrote. He wrote it uh, after kind of getting out of his uh, uh, a mental health 
or yeah, mental health hospital after he kind of experienced um, uh, the Holocaust and and in Nazi Germany, and he wrote this book, and it's it's astounding. But it really wasn't like he he didn't have a chance to be received in his lifetime. So it's just it's one of those things to where uh, I don't know. I think that's what's interesting about what we do as teachers is I think it's much less about like whatever. I don't know. Ego, I guess we're serving in terms of this, but really like what our students need. You know, I think, I mean, if, if I had to get rid of YA, you know, I would have not, I would have so many non-readers because I couldn't have reached them with Jason Reynolds long way down or ghost or any of those books. I mean, there's tons of books that become gateways. The outsiders is young adult fiction and it's a part of the unofficial canon. The giver is young adult fiction and, it, and it's kind of wedged itself into the canon. In my opinion, I think Holes is a part of the canon. I think Holes is an astronomically great book, but it is mm-hmm. it, it's it's one of those kind. Of, I, I I think it uh, Holes I feel like will be in libraries forever, the same way you mm-hmm. know Frankenstein and Huckleberry Finn will be in libraries forever, assuming. And it's I don't know. I, what do you think about that? Like just the. What we see today, you know, is it, can we make those judgments about books today or is it really just nostalgia goggles that are kind of clouding judgments of, of current work maybe? Well, no, I think, you know, I guess the question is what is literary, you know, I mean, what makes something literary yeah. and, and, and the thing about the giver, cause I just, we just finished the giver, <clears throat> excuse me, with my students and, um, Friday. Was it Friday? Yeah. Anyway, uh, might have been Thursday. But anyway, we finished The Giver, and the kids had a a gut a, a, a gut wrenching, if you will, response to the ending. You know, and everybody had a mixed feeling about it. So it it actually, which tells me the students got into it. Right. So I think what makes something literary are rich, rich characters. And what, when you really look at her book through a character study, which is kind of how we did, um, I wanted them to look at the, the depth of a character. I wanted them to understand that writers who write well create developed and rich characters. And Jonas is one of those characters. He is complicated. His world becomes complicated. And so, and he changes in a profound way. And he can never see his world the same again. And the kids were just astounded, I think, by that. And so we talked about, I think, I think if if my students don't understand anything this year, they'll understand what rich characterization is. So I think a rich character developed a a plot that's intricate, that's kind of unpredictable and profound and gets that, you know, that, that response that my kids gave. And the Outsiders does the same thing. I mean, the Outsiders, it's got some rich characters that are going through something that outside you can identify with it a little bit. We've all had those people that, you know, 
that we wanted to be a part of their clique or a part of their gang. And we've had people in school that have been mean to us. And we sometimes might have been mean to them. And and then, but when you look at it and when he starts reflecting, when Ponyboy starts reflecting, his character, you get to see deeply how he feels and how he's having a hard time figuring out what has happened. I mean, they lost three people in one week, you know, and he mentions that. He's like, how do you handle that? What do you do with it? I mean, Dally will never know, right? And so when when I was reading that part and the kids and I, we were reading it, uh, you know, we had tears and mainly Miss Ochoa had tears. But uh, but the, but the thing is, is I had a gut, you know, reaction. They did too. And they understand now that, Literary works have deep characters with true issues that from complicated worlds that change them in a profound way. And I think that is what makes good literature, uh, honestly. And I think those are the things, that's why the canon is so good. I mean, Hester Prynne and what she has to go through and how her whole world and the way people react to her, it's still applicable today, as we've already mentioned. I mean, it is applicable today. And so when you're looking at these, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, it's probably one of my most favorite books to teach uh, because the kids are like wowed by once they get into it about Scout and how she sees her world and how everything around her, she's waking up, if you will, to all of the injustices that surround her. And she's trying to take it all in. And yet she's got a, you know, a huge giant of a father who's taking it on you know, directly. And I mean, you're talking about a complicated world that she's having to navigate makes her a rich character. And so I really think it's in the characters and in the, in the worlds in which these authors create that they have to navigate through that makes a difference. And I think good YA is, are those types of things. I think fantasy, for example, if it's a good character, if it's a good story, if it's a good world and it's plausible and you can believe in it and you can sink yourself into it, then I think it would make for good literature. So, uh, you know, and everybody has their choice in genre, but I really do think it's in those characters and how they're developed that make yeah. a difference. Yeah. I mean, I think there is something to that where, you know, it's the, it, I think a good analog to this is probably movies, right? We, there's movies we watch that are great popcorn movies. You watch them, they're fun, uh, they're exciting, they can make you sad, angry, nervous, whatever. But in the end, when you walk away, you're like, oh, it was a good movie, right? It's It doesn't change your life. It's not something you talk about forever. You'll probably forget it in you know, a few weeks or whatever, but it was fun. It was a good time, nice escapism. Uh, and then there's movies that are incredible that are in that are de- deep that that change you in some ways i mean there's i can i i know the difference between these like you know and sometimes the the genres are blurred which i think is the interesting part like i think uh 
I can't speak to a lot of the Marvel movies. I think they're all popcorn movies. I know that's not true. I, I know there's some really great ones in there. Now, um, now I'm about to go see Doctor Strange. Yeah. Well, you know what? I just it. I heard that they tease X Men, which is might get me back into the Marvel because X Men, oh, Spider Man, and stuff. X Men are great, but mm-hmm. though I think there's so many there's so many metaphors with X Men and being the outcast and the freaks and the mutants and stuff. I just as a as a person who's always felt like an outcast that I just really uh, I'm attracted to that plot, but. Um, on these stories, you know, you have like stuff like the dark Knight, um, which was, you know, I think universally hailed as just a, a phenomenal film, a phenomenal character, uh, the Joker, for instance, you know, these are, uh, these are popcorn movies that kind of bridge those gaps. But then you have stuff like, like for me, I think one of the, the greatest films of all time is, uh, Requiem for a dream. There, that movie is insanely powerful. It's incredibly dark, um, but it's 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 revolutionary. There will be blood is another one. No Country for Old Men is another one. Like there's just movies that really kind of transcend into you walk away going, man, I just I'm different from experiencing this. And there's books like that. You know, there's book like you know I I've, I've read the majority of Dan Brown books, and I come away. There was a time in my life where Dan Brown was really significant because it was he was using science and religion and facts and stuff. It was really fun, but it's very surface level. Like Robert Langdon, you know, his main character in the, in the most of his books, there's not a lot of change, right? He doesn't change from book to book. He's just Robert Langdon. He's the genius. He's the spy, or not the spy. He's the he's the professor. He's doing all this stuff. And it's interesting, you know. It's the same thing as like any of these kind of like these thriller novels that people follow from character to character to character. It's just kind of the same thing and they're fun and they're interesting. Um, but then you have like great expectations and you have, uh, you know, uh, as I lay dying and, and books like that, that are literally fundamentally like you can't read them and not be different. You know, you might not like them, I suppose. Um, like Moby Dick, Moby Dick is one of those books where I understand why people hate it. But if you read that whole thing, it's, it's life changing. That book is incredible on so many Frankenstein is one of the most wildest books to read. And I have massive problems with Frankenstein. Personally, I think it's so ridiculous when, when she meets the monster or when they meet the monster, when they come into contact and when the owner does, and he's like, when they're having the conversation and the monster's retelling his story about how he learned to talk, I'm like, this is, this is, this is so like outside of like rational or whatever, but the concepts of that book of creator, of being creation, having problems with, with the person who created you and, and having with that, the whole God concept literally ingrained in that whole story and the role of science, all that, that is so ahead of its time and revolutionary. And you read it today and it still has impact. And it's like, Holy crap. Like that, that's literature. You know what I mean? And I, I would argue that I think there's a lot of books today that I think would do that. Now we, we won't know until the test of time. Also publishing has changed, right? Like a lot of the books that were, that were successful back in the day have, have kind of disappeared. Like there's stuff out of print, you know, we just know the same core people because that's the stuff that stayed in print, right? There's all this stuff that has lost and stuff. And there's, we live in a different world where we have Goodreads that keeps track of every book published and Amazon and all these digital libraries that just keep everything going in kind of perpetuity and, 
authors buy back their rights now and self-publish, and there's all kinds of nuances to the publishing industry to that are just different. And um, so I don't know. I think this this uh, the whole concept of this is really fascinating because I think this is directly tied to what we do in education, which is you know when we're picking mini lessons, for instance, it's like. I just read Penny Kittle the other day. She, uh, someone had shared uh, uh, something from one of her presentations, and it was I've heard her say this quote before, but it was like the best teacher of writing is a writer, right? Like the best teacher of writing is powerful text. The best teacher of writing is books. The best, you know, any version of that, and that's what we do as teachers. We try to find these model texts, these novels that will transcend from just teaching a standard right now we do te- we teach the standard we do all of that we do what we're trying to do but ideally what we're always trying to aim for is the bar above that which is that transcendent lesson that lesson that permeates through them in a different way uh giving them a video or a poem or a passage that we can study the craft we can put a standard to it we can do all that but then kids walk away and they remember what we talked about. They remember learning. They remember going to that. And I think that is that this is the Holy grail of English classrooms. And it's all about, I think it really comes down to knowing your kids, right? I mean, it's, it's knowing what might connect to them. And I think there's some universal stuff, but at the same time, I've had things that worked with the group that I talked about where I looped up, um, that works with them that did not at all work for the kids this year. And I had to go, well, (laughs) (laughs) let's redo this and try to find something else. And I think that's where the limitations of the canon come from is not everything in the canon is relevant to every part of time, not relevant to every kid, not relevant to every community. Some of it is, some of it's not. Um, But as the teacher, I think we have to be flexible enough and hopefully we have leaders that are flexible enough to allow us to go, you know what? This isn't right this year. Like I know I, I teach the, you know, the Scarlet letter every year. But you know what? Maybe it's not. This year would be the year to do it because we've talked about it, it is the definition of censorship and, and cancel mm-hmm. culture. The Scarlet Letter is probably the most relevant thing. So that was probably a bad <laughs> example. True. But it is that like it sometimes some things might not fit a certain way. Um, I don't know. I mean, you you have an interesting perspective on this, I think, because you went from, you know, you were an academic coach for a long time and you, you got to do so many different things in that role. And then you went back to teaching at a different school and then you came to us. Were there things that you employed, uh, when you went back into the classroom where you were like, Oh, I've done this. And it just, it fell flat and you had to, to alter that or all my stuff works. (laughs) (laughs) Just like all your kids read and all your kids, they all read. They're all great. That's what we say. We say when anyone asks. <laughs> Anything falling flat? Oh yeah, a few things, right? Um, yeah, I mean, like, let's just take the wheelbarrow, which is a nice little uh, uh, Nancy Atwell lesson. Worked well with one group, and it didn't work well with the other group. Of course, come to find out, it was all about vocabulary. It, it didn't. It, it, but it didn't work the same. It didn't work the same. So I think really. It's that's why you don't that's why I think it's important not to be strategy based, but to be philosophy based. Does that make sense? Workshop based. I mean, you need to know what a workshop is for you and you need to 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 hang your hat, if you will, on 
that pillar that, uh, you know, it, that will move, move your kids. And so, so that pillar is again, and Bob's, if you will, choice, time, ownership, and response. I mean, I just, I think that no matter what you do. So yeah, I think things fall flat. And I think within that you can have strategies and some strategies work better than others. But I think if you're strategy based and activity based only, then I think you're going to have a bigger chance of falling flat more often because not every strategy works for every kid. It's kind of like in research, you know, when you do one of the things when I studied research, which I'm not, I don't have my doctorate. So let's just make that clear. I do have a master. So I did have to take a research class. And from one of my memories of research class is, is, Whatever fits in your classroom, if you're doing action research, it might apply in your room, but you might not can replicate it over here in this room because your variables are different. And I think that's something to consider. So, uh, yeah, but there are some things that seem to work over time and that that's, those are my go-tos and that is they need time to write. They need time to come up with some ideas. They need um, me to guide them and not just, you know, hover on them and tell them what to write. Uh, so anyway, there's some other things there that we've talked about. But yeah, I've had some things fall flat. Well, I think this is this is interesting because I have seen, you know, I follow I, the the cultures of different social media groups is so funny to me. I love our Facebook group. I my my Facebook people are my people. They mm-hmm. they they love the kind of the, the general message of Teach Me Teacher and, and the brand, so to speak, of you know the the positivity about education, addressing the big issues, but uh, understanding that just because we have an opinion doesn't mean other people's opinions are invalid and all that stuff. Um, and then you have Twitter, which I despise. And then you have Instagram, which I also love. And Instagram is interesting because <clears throat> most of the teachers over there are young, right? It's it's the younger crew, I, I, uh, I, so to speak. Now, not all of them, but a lot of them are. And they're all, you know, they're, they're, <clears throat> I think I feel that attachment to them because they're, they're kind of my age. Some of them are, a lot of them are younger than me. Um, but a lot of them are kind of within the same generation, within five years or whatever. And what's interesting about them is some of the English teachers, they, they, they have these conversations like, oh, you know, I've always wanted to be the binder teacher, right? Having all of your lessons in your binder and you have things that you can just put in there and you can just pull it out and all this other stuff. And I think that is, I like the idea, right? I think the organization's nice. I think being able to do that is nice. But I think the the limitations that puts on you. Were you in the room? This is a, this is a segue kind of. Were you in the room when one of my eighth grade students was asking me about something specific? And I said, oh, yeah, I, I didn't do that this year. And I was talking to her about how I don't teach the same thing. Were you in there when I said that? I think so. It's so funny because a lot of my eighth graders, they come back and visit and some like they have different lunches and sometimes they'll come in and like watch me teach just a different lesson or whatever. And like, oh, we didn't do this. I'm like, I know. I was like, I do things differently every year. I was like, there's some things I do and some things I don't. And I don't have a rhyme or reason for that. But I think that it's that flexibility I feel like is so 
core. I feel like because our lives are so stressful as teachers and because the demands of teachers is so stressful, sometimes we like the idea of just being like, oh, I can just walk to my wall and pick out this lesson and boom. It's the same mentality of, oh, if I just need something, I just go to the internet, go to Teachers Pay Teachers, buy it, and then I have it, which in some cases those are legit. Right. I've you can have those moments. You can have go to's. I've done that. I've done that this year where I was like, ah, crap, I need something. Boom. I know this works. And I threw it in. Um, but I think in general, at the the 99 percent of our focus should be gathering this data going, OK, so what do my students need today? Sometimes maybe that's a classic. I did a whole week on Emily Dickinson this year. I did not do that last year. Um, and it was awesome. I thought it was great. The reason I did it last year is because. My kids were just they – were, they were not in that mode. We didn't need it. Um, I did a, a novel study like you and our partner are doing uh, this year with your students. I didn't do that this year. Why? It just – it didn't fit kind of the, the mode we were going in. I just – it didn't – I didn't like kind of the, the format. It, I feel like it would have broken what I was kind of working on. Um, and I, for better or for worse, I don't know. I think there's part of me that was like, man, I should have done that because I'm watching y'all do it. And it's like, ah, so there's, there's so many cool things you can do with it when you're using, you know, the, the novel as kind of the core and stuff. But it's, it's awesome that two teachers on the team have done it. You know, I didn't. So, um, it's awesome to see that, but that, that decision-making I feel like is something that, um, if anything, we should strive to encourage people to be, you know, be, be comfortable taking risk and trying things. You know, I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves when we think about like, Oh my God, this is, this is their school year. You know, if we don't do everything, you know, they're never going to be okay. And we're going to set them back. It's just not true. Kids learn and kids process and kids come to you at different levels all the time and you do your best. But I think that by doing your best, you know, I think you have to grow, as a, as a educator. And to do that, you have to try different things. If you're only doing what you've always done, I just don't see how you can grow from that. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I, I never do the same thing. I, I do. I do some things that are the same, like, you know, my yeah. trigger words, mm-hmm. I, but I never choose the same trigger word. I never know what trigger word is going to pull up. A lot of times it just depends on the year and my kids and what I know they understand or what I want them to try to go. What? You know, just depends. Um, so, so I do that, and then uh, pre-writing those writing strategies that I do. There's some that I do. But I don't do all of them every year. One year, I, this year I didn't do blueprinting. I always do blueprinting. I didn't do it this year. I don't think I might have. I don't remember. There was one year in the last three years I didn't do it. Uh, so yeah, I ch- I changed things up uh, mainly because of me. I don't always remember what I what I did. I do know that when I years ago, you know, when you were asking me earlier about when I when I really started becoming a a, a, a true writing teacher, that probably happened in ninety three, ninety two, ninety three, ninety three, I guess. And I found, I was going through some boxes, and I found um, a dialectical notebook that I kept. And on one side, it was what we did, and on the other side, how the kids and I responded. And when I went back and looked at it, I was like, oh, my gosh, the first thing I did was trigger words. And I that was 93, and I'm doing them today. So there are some things, but I haven't always done them. But when I went back, I was, you know, I I go over that every once in a while and I'll pull up one of those things because it's like this worked then I wonder if it'll work now. So I'm more of a researcher. I'm more of a 
let's kind of see if this will work. And if it doesn't, oh, well, I'll just move to the next thing. It's not that big a deal because my philosophy stays the same. I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, I mean, I, we should do an episode on the dialectical journal. I think it's so fascinating. I've used mm-hmm. it in conjunction with craft and draft. I've used it in tutorials. I think it's fascinating. Um, and yeah. I think there's, there's multiple versions, so that'd be kind of fun to dive into, but yeah, we could do that. I don't know. I, I just, I was so fascinated during this conversation. You, I think you threw me off with your answer I'm to sorry. the, to the, to the opening question. And now I just became obsessed with time and value and, and everything else. So in any case, ladies and gentlemen, this was quite the meandering episode of craft and draft. I hope you enjoyed it. We love, you know, this is what we do naturally, literally Friday, you know, yesterday, we, you know, the kids leave and Pam Ochoa and our partner, we go sit down and we literally talked for like an hour just about random stuff. You know, the the happenings of the school. We talked about curriculum. We talked about everything happening in the district. And it was just, you know, it's just one of those things. So this is what we do. You just got a, a glimpse into how far we go in just random conversations. But we recorded it for you. So hopefully you learned something. Hopefully you enjoyed it. If you did, subscribe to it. Miss anything. Leave a review if you have not done so. Several hundred of you listen to this podcast every single week. If you are one of those people and you haven't hit that star button or you haven't left a review, do so. It really does help the show. It helps grow it. The reason Teach Me Teacher is the way it is today is because so many people have reviewed the show. It really does help. I'm telling you, it's the algorithm. It's not me. It's not, I didn't set this up, but do that. It really does help. If you want to be a part of more craft and draft, if you want bonus episodes that no one else will ever hear. If you want videos that no one else will ever have access to, if you want first in line questions to jump in, go to Patreon. You can find that link at craftanddraftworkshop.com. You can search us on Patreon, Craft and Draft, and support us over there. You get some merch if you support us long enough, and you get access to all of this stuff and more. We have some wonderful plans. We'll probably do some this summer, and you get the inside scoop of everything. So support the podcast if you want. If you don't, just subscribe, share, and review. It really does help, like I said, 5,000 times, so I want you to know that. 5,001 more times. That's Pamela Joe. I'm Jacob Chastain, and know that we are here for you.